Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're uh, back into our Ten Commandments series. Uh, I apologize, I was gone uh, kind of on vacation. Thank you for allowing me to go and things like that. But we're back into Ten Commandments. And so we're going to read through that again. Um, And my apologies that it's me reading rather than somebody else. But it's kind of how it all worked out today. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Let's read this together. And if you're new to us, and every time we see the capital L-O-R-D in Scripture, you're going to hear me say Yahweh, um, because that's what is written in Hebrew. So just be mindful of that. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work but in the seventh day is a Sabbath day of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in you in the land which the Lord uh, Yahweh your God gives to you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A word of caution. Viewer discretion. Today's topic that we're going to talk about is definitely mature subject matter, but I think it's really necessary. It's not one that's going to be taken lightly. And again, the prayer from the beginning, you kind of may get why my heart is kind of jumpy because we're talking about this on a day where all this other stuff is going on, uh, fitting that I just trust that God would indeed speak. Um, When God speaks the command, do not commit adultery, He is speaking to an issue that reaches far deeper than when a married man or married woman cheats and is unfaithful. God is speaking into the raging fire, as we know it, that is human sexuality. It's one of the hottest issues, period. In particular, the church. It's an issue that we as a church generally get more worked up about than things like world hunger and injustice and war and the like. We live in a world where definitely sex sells and where being sexy apparently is considered a high compliment, even on things like a mission trip, you know, like going across the world to Asia is sexier than going to our inner city, perhaps. No matter what you are, people, events, ads, cars, anything really, this is a thing. And so I think we need, perhaps maybe more than ever today, God's truth and his heart to speak into our lives in this way. And because I remind you, if you click, that the reason God speaks the Ten Commandments is to protect and enhance the life of freedom that he has won for us. That's the hope in all of these commandments. Which means in the failure to keep these commandments, and this one today in particular... The issue isn't about us doing right or doing wrong. It is about us being enslaved. In other words, the issue at stake with the Ten Commandments, and this one in particular, is freedom and slavery. Do we want to live an enslaved life, a ruined life, or a free and thriving life? And today's commandment, I think you'll all agree, 
shows us the slavery, the slavery that we might be living perhaps more strikingly than any other. I'm just going to give you some statistics and you can click for each of these lines. Did you know 43% of Americans now say that watching pornography is acceptable and good? Porn sites get more trafficked on a daily than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Globally, the pornography industry is a $97 billion industry. You did not read that incorrectly. 12 billion of it is in the USA. In comparison, the NFL makes $8.1 billion, or they made that in 2018. There are 2.3 billion separate porn pages, and somewhere in the, in the midst of 18 million or some ridiculous number like that, porn websites. One of the more popular one, I won't tell you which one, apparently houses 1,515,627 hours of video. Apparently that's 173 years of video. Apparently the first telegraph was sent in 1844 and if you began watching all the videos on the site, then you would still be watching the videos to this very day. And the largest consumers of pornography is a 12 to 17 year old gap. And 47 million pornography videos are viewed by 7 to 14 year olds on the daily in the United States, apparently. Basically, if you own a smartphone, count yourself a member of this infamous club. Our world, our culture, now more than ever, is consumed, obsessed, enslaved to this sexuality that we have. And today, I think we're praying that God in his grace would free us. Because I think we can agree it's ruining our lives. So as we've always done throughout the series, the three things, the what, the why, and the how, the why, what, and the how. Why does God speak this commandment? What is in the world? What in the world is he saying? And how do we indeed keep this commandment? We'll go through that and then finish. So first, why this commandment is important, right? Click. And the first reason, click, is that God is telling us that sex is a powerful gift. Yes, I said that, a powerful gift. So please handle with care. Now, contrary to popular belief, God does not believe that sex is evil. Yeah, you heard it from me. God isn't a killjoy. It's not a buzzkill. God is the creator of sex and therefore wishes that sex would be the gift that he intended it to be. You all know the very first command God ever speaks in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. That requires this thing called sex. If you don't think that, if you think God is a prude or whatever, go read the Song of Solomon. I won't read it for you. It's pretty racy. Or even this one, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, it'll be on the screen. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving uh, hand and a graceful doe, uh, a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That's actually in the Bible. I did not, I know. You should read the Bible more maybe. But before we get too excited about these things, sex was created specifically within the context of a covenant marriage because it is a powerful gift and must be handled with care. It's like any movie you watch, any movie with like a crazy huge power source, there's always a dilemma of who gets the power and what they do with it. Think like a, a Infinity Wars Avengers, right? The Infinity Stones or Aladdin and the, you know, Aladdin and the genie lamp, you know, whatever. Power is only good when it is used for the right reasons and in the right way. Outside of it, all it does is create chaos and destruction. And you've seen this and you know this. So God is saying sex is great, it's powerful, it's beautiful, but you better use it well, because if not, it can ruin you quick. So that's the first reason God tells us. The second, click, is that God wants to teach us who he is in his character. 
If you've been here with us for a while, if you haven't, let me refresh your memory. All the commandments, they all flow out of God's character, his faithfulness, his jealousy, his oneness, all of that. And so what God is telling us is to not commit adultery and be faithful because he is always committed and always faithful to us. God will never commit adultery to us and therefore we ought not because we want to be like him and reflect his character. See, if you keep these commandments and you draw closer into God, then you draw closer into who he is and that's how you end up living free and full lives in the process. Which means if we understand the power of sex and these things in our lives, then we can live free lives indeed. So I think that's why God speaks it. That's important. That's why it's included in the Ten Commandments. Then beyond the reasons why, what does it mean? And this is super critical, so click. Second thing, what does this actual commandment mean? Well, let me break it down for you historically. For those people in Moses and Jesus' time, women, unfortunately for y'all, but thankfully you're not this way anymore, women were considered to be the property of men. If you're a daughter, you're the property of your father first, and then if you, if you get married, then you're the pro uh, property of your husband. So this commandment in those days in that context was speaking directly against a man's right to use his property as he wished. But here's the way it would have been heard by the men back in the day, okay? They would have heard it like this. They would have heard, don't sleep with another man's wife because that is his property and you can't violate his property without his consent. I know, that's terrible, but that's the way they heard it. It's why prostitution back in those times was legal because they weren't married to anyone, therefore they weren't the property of anyone. So husbands sleeping with prostitutes was okay back in the day. That's not adultery because property rights were not abused. But if indeed he slept with another man's wife, that would be adultery because he's committing property fraud. That's why my professor says, she in those days was his and his alone clique, but he was not hers and hers alone. But as you may figure, this is not okay with God. Right? We can see this in Hosea and throughout other different parts of scripture. God would never stand up to this kind of behavior. Right? And so he speaks his command. But thankfully, because there are many people who would take this and try to kind of strictly kind of go around these understandings of adultery, Jesus then comes in Matthew chapter five, which we'll read in a second, and then takes us a bit deeper. And this is where we want to really dig deep. Okay, so Matthew chapter five, 27 through 30, the words will be on the screen. Uh, and then I will read it for us. Let me flip there really quickly. Um, and then we're going to dig much deeper into this idea. Because if that's all that God is speaking, don't just, you know, sleep with somebody else's wife because they're not your property. We all know that that's not enough. And so we want to go and dig deeper. And thankfully, Jesus provides us the context. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. I will read this for us. You've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So now the parameters have gone beyond adultery and now we're talking about lust. I know, I'm preaching this today. I know, get used to it. So the first thing I think Jesus does in this context on the Sermon on the Mount, is I think he's exalting all the wives in the world to the same dignity as the husband. Thanks be to God. He's saying wives, just like husbands, are real people. People whose purpose is not clearly to fulfill the desires of the man that they married or any other man for that matter. So Jesus is saying adultery is no longer just a matter of property, but it's an issue of commitment. And because Jesus knows much better than us, he digs deeper and intensifies it 
by basically trying to say, click, that adultery is present in the desires that precedes adultery. Actually, that's not up there. My fault. Basically, the whole idea is this. You can't and you will not commit adultery if the desire for it isn't, isn't there first, which means the desire that leads to adultery is the same as adultery, and that desire is a thing that he calls lust. Now, let me define lust for us really quickly, and it'll be on the screen. Jesus is speaking to a very particular desire, and that is a desire to possess to take someone for myself and to use them for my own self-gratification. Appreciation is one thing for sure, but lust is a whole nother. Literally, if you look at the Greek, this is what Jesus says, click, whoever keeps on looking at a woman in order to lust after her is what he says. Let me just put it out there frankly. And again, I apologize if some of these are a bit crude. I'm just taking social references. Appreciating beauty with a glance is one thing. This lust is a purposeful, continual, leering stare that goes way beyond trying to appreciate beauty and to desire. But to desire and have that person. For the men in the room, it's what we call the second look. It's the look back, right? You're walking down the street and you see a very attractive woman, and you can appreciate the beauty and say, wow, that's a very attractive movie, but then you look. Yeah, you know that look. F. Dale Bruner says, it'll be on the screen, looking at a beautiful person is like a drive. Looking at a beautiful person is a drive given in creation, but staring or leering is a drive given in the fall from creation. And now to be clear also, this lust is not just for married people, and I love that Jesus digs deeper, but for married people, this lust lust drives a wedge between a husband and a wife. There's no way it cannot. When a husband or a wife is desiring to possess another, we won't desire anything with the former. This lust will then be seen and felt in the body language, in the actual words, in the speech, and actually finally in our actions. Again, my professor says the act of adultery is not needed to adulterate marriage. Click. Hmm. But for the single people, because most of in this room are single, everyone else, here's what lust does, and here's what it is. Lust reduces the other to less than a person. They become an object. This is the main issue with pornography all kinds. As we, the watchers, we reduce the other to less than a person, a mere thing, an object for my own satisfaction, the viewer. But here's the deeper level. For those of us who engage in this, not only does it make the other person an object of our thing and that makes them lesser, it makes me or you, the viewer, less than a person. And this point cannot be missed. Let me, let me really reiterate this. As much as it is damaging to the other who is being watched, it damages us, the watcher. It breeds selfishness, contempt, darkness, and violence. Did you know every sexual assault in the world, according to one psychologist who studied for 10 years, has always been linked to pornography in some way, some shape, or form. She's never encountered one that wasn't linked to the other. It ruins us. It does crazy things to our minds, our bodies, our emotions, and the like. I won't tell you all the statistics, but apparently they estimate that in the church, which was right here, in the age group that we have right here, which is from about 10 to whoever the oldest is in the room, that in the church, 75% of the people that walk in and out of churches every single Sunday are watching pornography. 
actively. See, we are people made to love, to serve, to bring joy, to sacrifice, to bring light. People made to image God, his love and his faithfulness. But you start to lust and then it'll enslave you and make you less and less like the God we were made to image. And it'll make you less unconditionally loving, less faithful, less committed, and less permeated with the love that he's given to us. It makes you utterly selfish, which is why we understand that the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. I'm not trying to be a killjoy, but I just know that this impacts so many people. And to the parents in the room, real quick, I know personally young men and women in this group that are struggling with this, and I know not so young men and women that are struggling with this. It impacts all of us. And I hope that we would see the darkness that this is creating in our world. And so before we go on to the third point on how we keep this commandment, I want us to just take one, like 30, 40 seconds maybe, and just be honest with yourself. You don't gotta tell nobody, you don't gotta say nothing to nobody, obviously. Be real that this issue of lust is an issue that you deal with, if indeed you do. Be real that this is indeed something that we are dealing with. So then third, how do we then keep this commandment? Now, I know there's a lot more that can be said about the depth of lust and all these things, and, but we're gonna kind of shift gears and focus because I think there's something that's missing in our battle against all of this. The church clearly is not winning this battle very well. We're not fighting it very well. And so how and what are we missing? So I wanna go over kind of the how in two ways. There's a practical, I think, and then there's what I call a relational, and I'll explain a little bit later. So first the practical and then the relational. So practically three ways and then relation three ways, um, and we're gonna go um, right as it is. And by the way, as we go through this, the point is not just to hear and do and nothing, but the point is to hear it and then actually do something about it, but here to go. So practically three ways. The first, click, call it like it is, okay? We don't do this enough, by the way, but we live in a world where we're practically and logistically bombarded constantly and therefore pressured unlike any other culture and society, both externally and internally, like never before. Okay, and so let me go over these pressures and a lot of these were given by a theologian by the name of Lewis Smeets. But externally, our culture, did you know, is the most sexualized culture in the history of the world. We're sexualized in convenience and access. You know it, anyone can get it anywhere. Well, I didn't share this statistic with you, but apparently, 60% of pornography is watched on mobile devices, aka phones and tablets, which means if you own a phone and a tablet, or if you've given your child a phone and a tablet, there's a high chance that they are watching it on those devices. I was in Japan just recently, and did you know there are these things called sexy hotels that you can check into in hour increments, hour, two, three, and then overnight, you know why? We live in a culture where sex is seen as for anyone and everyone. I think we all should know this, but if you're parents, then you should know that sex is being taught in many ways by the culture as something that we need and should be doing. And if you're not doing, then something is wrong with you. 
I know it's a stupid example, but I remember the Jonas Brothers way back. Their father was a pastor growing up. They, they, they put on these things called purity rings when they were like making it big and everyone made fun of them. They're like, what do you mean? You're not going to have sex before marriage? Like, what, how crazy is that? And they ended up taking them off. Every movie, every high school movie that you watch is all about that. You know how many movies there are about high school kids who feel like they're a loser or they're not cool if they don't lose their virginity by the time they are graduating from senior, uh, as a senior. So then they have these plans, these elaborate plans to lose their, lose their virginity on prom night. Sorry, seniors, if you're not going to prom anymore, I apologize. We don't really worry about pregnancy in our day with all the contraceptives that are around, right? Like back in my day when I was young, they used to actually teach, I don't know if they do, they used to actually teach abstinence as the best way. I don't think they teach that anymore, do they? They just always tell you to practice safe sex. Even in marriage, if sex isn't fulfilling you romantically, then we believe it's okay to get a divorce because that's what marriage is for. The people actually think that in the culture today. So there's all these external pressures that we're bombarded with. And I didn't even touch all the social media influencers out there and what they do and what they say and how they dress and all those things. I didn't even get to that. Like that's a whole nother thing that we're all trying to make sense of at this point. Young people in the room, did you know that you are more influenced by the people you watch on Instagram than your parents, your teachers, your pastors, your, te- your, your guidance people combined? Did you know that? So there's the external, then there's the internal, and there's so many, but let me just name a few. The internal pressures that allow us to lust and therefore engage in these activities are things like anger, self-hatred, escaping reality, boredom. Did you know people say, you know what, I'm bored, so let me just go watch porn, that's a thing. Emotional lacking, lacking maturity and perfectionism. Let me just address this really quickly, and this is not me being a prude. But the way that the females in the world dress these days I want to ask, why? Is that not the internal pressure that we face, that we want to be perfect and that we want to be more liked? There's just no reason for me to be able to see the undercurvature of your butt when you're wearing a pair of shorts. It's just not necessary. Real fact, ladies, if you wear a midriff shirt, and you're showing this much midriff, do you know where every man is going to look? Right where you're showing them to look. Now, I'm not in any way giving credence in this idea that men are off the hook. No, 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 by no means necessary am I anywhere, getting anywhere near that. But I wonder, if you're secure and you think that you're beautiful, you would not do that to yourself because you don't need the affirmation of someone that is going to give to you to make yourself feel that way. So we got to be honest. Men do the same thing. We're always trying to be this because of this internal pressure that we want to be, you know, whatever it is that we think that we're needing to be. These internal pressures, these external pressures put together and don't front, right? And pretend that you're above these things. If we call it like it is, you have to know what the pressures are for us. So first, call it like it is. Let's be real. Let's be honest. Then second, click, is say no to the myths. Here are a few. We in this culture believe that if you don't have sex regularly, you become agitated and frustrated. The number of times you hear this line in a movie, bro, you just got to get laid. You got this pent-up sexual frustration. You just got to release it somehow. Pun intended. There's an old movie, I know, really old. It's called Something About Mary. I don't know if you tell it. It was when Ben Siller was like a young person and Cameron Diaz was really young. You may not even know who those people are. 
But there's a scene where he's really nervous to meet this really, really, really attractive girl, and people tell him, the thing you got to do is to masturbate so that you are no longer feeling so pressured and you can go ahead and be a little more relaxed. That's a thing. Another myth, I can't help it. I have feelings and I need and I got to express them. Which sounds, I guess, interesting, but did you know this is a statement of slavery that you're declaring over yourself? You're literally saying, I have no control over any of my feelings and the things that I desire. I have to enact them. We say that we want to be free people but we often submit to these things that we say we have no control over. We believe that sex is just physical. Mm -hmm. Genesis says that the man and the wife, they become one. And if you're married, you know that this is way more than that, much more than just physical. You'll see it on the screen. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. My professor says, click, I am, I am a body, not that I do, I do not have a body, but I am a body, excuse me. This is why premarital sex is not, this is why we don't say it's good. Not because we're again prude, but because sex is way more than just a physical act. It goes way beyond that. There's something powerful that happens that God has created it to be. But these are the myths that we live with. So say no to the myths because they're not true. They don't actually accomplish the things that they indeed say they accomplish. And then the third practical way, click, is to simply stay away. Keep away from the places, the situation, the people. Just be brutally honest. Parents in the room, I've always said this. But this is why my kids won't ever have a computer or a smartphone or a tablet in their room, only in the public places. In our room, in our house, we, have our, we, we made our dining table kind of like this coffee, like cafe kind of a vibe. On one side, there's desks. And on the other side, there's a couch and there's books and things like that. And that's where they're going to study. And people go, oh, when they get older, they're going to need a, a place to study on their own. Yeah, I'll buy the little cubicle separations. I promise. <laughs> I'm being, you think I'm kidding. If you want me to spend $250 on a pair of noise-canceling headphones so that you can go ahead and drown out the noise, go ahead, I'll do that. But all public, all media consumption things will be in the public where I can see it. Is $250 worth the purity of your children? I think it is. This in many ways I feel like is what Jesus is trying to get at when he says tear it out or throw it out. He's saying flee, get rid of it. Stay away, turn off the TV, don't watch that show, don't take those things into the places. We live in a world where there's not a whole lot of shame anymore. Being in a public place, as long as there's a door closed, gives people apparently license to do whatever it is that they want. So practically, call it like it is, say no to the myths, and then stay away. But then there's a different element and a deeper element that we have to address, and that's where we're going to go and we'll finish here. It's because we all know that these practical things don't actually handle the problems. Because one, they're not as easy to do, right? I, could, I can repeat these things to myself all day long, but they're just, you know, sometimes again, it's just like I can't help myself sometimes, it feels like, right? And, and there's these things and we, get, we, we understand that. And so I think there's a relational how that we need to address, and this is what uh, I want to get at. And I don't want to call it the spiritual how, and for the reasons you'll see in a little bit, 
Because while the first three that we talked about were things that we ought to do, I think these three are much more or less about doing and rather being. And we're going to get to that. And this is where things get really real now. So relationally, how in the first one click is one, get at the root. Just like we saw in a few, a few weeks ago with violence and murder, these things do not come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's important to stop the series of actions at the very beginning. If you don't look, maybe you won't fantasize and then maybe you won't act. But indeed, it's greater than that, especially in a day and age where you can't not look because it seems like it's literally everywhere. But more importantly, I think we all understand that these things just don't happen just because they happen. They, 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 they start much deeper than that, to the root, to the source. So that's what we're going to get at. And I think this is why Jesus says in Matthew 15, that it's not what goes into our mouths that makes us unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart and then through the mouth. And the reason why he said that is because back in those days, the Pharisees were masters at not committing sin. This is going to be, this is going to sound silly, but this is literally what it was. When it came to adultery and lust, like back in those days, just being in a public place with a woman sometimes that was married, right, was considered to be lustful and adultery, things like that. And so there was a group of really, really kind of like high end, like I can't do anything even close or remotely close to sinning. So there were men who literally would walk around and anytime they saw like women like way in the periphery, they would just walk around blindfolded. I mean, just, just close their eyes and do, do like this. I.e., if I don't see, then I cannot lust and I cannot commit adultery, so on and so forth. So there was a group of men, literally, that would walk around and run into things, breaking things, and they walk around, they have bruises and cuts everywhere, apparently, because that's how literally serious they took it. But then Dallas Willard, a theologian, gives us this insight. He says, I think Jesus is saying that if you think that tearing out your eyes or cutting off your hands will eliminate lusting, well, then maybe it's worth it. But maybe Jesus is going deeper. Because say you're blind and that you have no hands. So maybe there's no possible way for you to look and to do, but what if being blind and having no hands, your heart is still wicked? And then he says this, and I quote, in their view, the Pharisees' view, the law could be satisfied and thus goodness attained if you avoided sinning. You're right if you've done nothing wrong, apparently. You could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated the body parts that make sinful actions possible. But then you would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. But the mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. So the deeper question always, that uh, always concerns what you are, not what you did or can do. And ask yourself this, what would you do if you could? Because eliminating body parts will not change that. See, avoiding sinning is one thing, but we all know that our heart may still be full of anger, contempt, and jealousy, and so on, and then we're no better off. It's why Jesus says in Mark 7, 21, 23, from within, out of the heart of men, the thoughts of evil proceed. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, acts of greed, iniquity, as well as deceit, lewdness, the envious glare, blasphemy, arrogance, and foolishness. All of these evils come from the inside and pollute the person. Get at the root. Notice and realize it's much deeper. Which means parents, if your children are struggling with this, then you know that just getting the smartphones out of the room and allowing them literally no chance or no opportunity to do it is not the end of the battle. There's something greater than that. So first, get at the root. Then the second relationally how on the screen is to realize and affirm the purpose of sex. And this is really important. I said earlier that God has made us sexual people. It's in his design. And some people have asked like, why would God do that? If, it was gonna be, if he knew that it was gonna turn out this terribly. 
But here's the purpose to sex, and this might surprise you. The purpose to us being sexual people is that we would know God better. Huh. My professor says, click, sexual desire is a symptom of our desire for God. If you click one more time, uh, the word for Hebrew to know is this Hebrew word called yada. You should see it on the screen. There it is, right? It's the same word that's used in Genesis 4.1. Now the man, Adam, knew his wife and conceived. That word to know was used in such an intimate way that it was literally a synonym for sex. So our sexual longing is a symptom, something that points toward the deeper longing to know God in intimacy and trust. This is why the first commandment is not don't commit adultery, but rather make God our one and only because God is the passionate lover of our souls for whom we are ultimately made. So every desire that we have indeed is just pointing to the greater desire that we have for God. Which means that when we can't control our sexual desires, it's a sign that deeper still we are hungering for God. And maybe that it's been a really long time since we have really enjoyed God. But because it's easy, we seek the physical outlet rather than seeking the love of God. So I'm not trying to tell you that we're supposed to stifle our sexual desires. That's not the point. But the point is that we must recognize what's going, in our, going on in our hearts. I love this quote. I've said it a bunch of times and I'll say it again and again. G.K. Chesterton says it'll be on the screen. Everyone who knocks at the door of a brothel, that's a prostitution house for those of you who don't know, is looking for God. And we've said this before. We were made not by God, but also for God, which means at the heart of who we are, the thing and the person we need most is God himself. So recognize what that means. And then we can, I think, divert it. And the third and the most important, get caught up in love. I want to finish because I think even preparing and I think even saying it more than the shock and the all, you know, kind of the, val- the shock value of this sermon in many ways, there's a part of me, I think, and a part of all of us that may be crying out at this point through the Ten Commandments and even particularly in this one. is like, how in the world are we actually going to do this? Like, come on, for real. And I think the general consensus in the church, maybe you're with me, is that with anything like this, the thing that we've been taught continually over and over and over again is one, just try harder. Avoid it. Stop it at the first domino. Which to be clear, isn't bad things. We ought to indeed all of those things. But I think just the honesty is this. We try and we try and we try and you fail and you fail and you fail again, isn't it? Someone will tell you, they'll tell the ladies, ladies, you don't have to dress that way. It's not who you are. You're more beautiful than that, yada, yada, yada. And you'll be like, yeah, I believe that. And you'll try. And then you go right back to it because you have insecurities that you haven't dealt with. Men will be told, hey, you know, you view women better and you know, understand that you are a caretaker, all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be. But you have violence and bitterness and hurt and anger in your heart that you can't deal with. And so you go right back to it. You're told, try and try and try again. And none of that actually ever works. You're told, read the Bible, pray a bit more, go to morning prayer, do whatever. None of these actually things for many of us, for most of us even, do not work if simply it's only a measure of our trying because on some days, let's be real, I just don't want to try. Right? I think it's why in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1, right after he tells us, Paul, that is, that love is this, love is that, and all these other things, and love is great. He says, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, 1, he says, pursue love. 
Here's the way I understand that. And this is the thing that I want to leave with you today. I think the call here is that we get so caught up in God's love that we become the people who will not look to use people, but people who can appreciate beauty and turn our, all of our desires to God and then live the life that he wants to live. I think we're missing something critical to this. Okay. And, and this, I think this illustration will get at it. Dallas Willard again is helpful. He says this and ask yourself this, ask yourself, do you think that it was difficult for Jesus hanging on the cross, being beaten, you know, scoured, spit at, insulted, all those things, stabbed and bleeding to say and looking upon the people, father, forgive them for they do not understand what they're doing. Do you think that was difficult for him? Answer that question in your own mind. Do you think it was difficult for Jesus hanging on a cross to look at those people and say, Father, forgive them? Or maybe the understanding is, do you think it's impressive that Jesus is able to hang on a cross and then look at those people who are hurting him and murdering him and stabbing him for no good reason because he's completely innocent? Do you think it was impressive that he did so? Because the reason why I suggest it, because if it was impressive, then you think that it was difficult and therefore he overcomes some difficulty. Because the answer is no, it was not difficult for him at all. In fact, it would have been more difficult or just in plain difficult for him to curse and his enemies and spew evil and hatred upon them because simply it is not who he is. He doesn't know how in many ways, it seems like. To do so is against who he is in his nature. So this is what Dallas Willard says. He calls us to him, uh, it'll be on the screen, to impart himself to us. He does not call us to do what he did. Listen, he does not call us to do what he did, which is never lust and never commit adultery, but to be as he was, which is permeated with love. Because then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him, which means the goal for today and forever is that we would be so permeated with his love, so caught up in his love, that his love would do in us all the things that he wants because of the result of us becoming brand new people. And if you think this concept is weird or different, it's not actually all that different. If you've ever had a crush on somebody, you know exactly what this is like, isn't it? You get caught up in someone else's whatever. All you can do is think about them all day long. Everything that they say apparently is funny, even though it's not funny at all. Everything they give to you apparently is beautiful if it's actually not that great. When they cook you a meal, even though it's not actually that tasty, it's so amazing because they cooked you a meal. That kind of thing, when you're caught up, you know, the honeymoon stage kind of idea. But the question is, have you ever felt this way about the love of God and the love that he has for you? It's why we've talked about all these things so far. It's why you put God as your one and only because that's what it means to get caught up in him. It's why you use and take his name properly. It's why you don't image him or make images of him in any kind of a way. It's why you take Sabbath and enjoy a part of him that you cannot get any other day in any other way. Spend real time with the Lord. Seek his beauty, deny yourself. Get caught up in his goodness and his love. A professor says this quote, and I want to share it with you because I think it's really indicative of us. He says, you can see then why 
fast-moving, high achievers. That's all of us in this room, by the way. Are especially vulnerable to inappropriate sexual fantasy and activity. Because we've been driving so hard for so long that we have slowly but surely created a vacuum in the soul, a vacuum into which lust and all its false promises easily enter. And you can see why then spouses and children of high achievers are also so vulnerable. They simply have not been pursued or cared for in a long time. Is that you? So they invite the praise team to come up to the stage and get ready to lead us in response. I want us to, for a moment, just be real and ask ourselves these questions. Because this issue isn't an issue of doing. It's an issue of recognizing that your desires that lead to these things are in the end a desire for the Lord. Which means if you seek these desires and let them run your life, then you will always be dissatisfied because they will never satisfy you the way that this can. And for some of you, maybe you're going to go on the journey of testing that out. And then you will find that it doesn't. I hope and I pray that more and more that we journey together in all the things that we do as a church to ever more just get caught up in the love that he has for us. To be so permeated with love that all of these things are the natural expressions of who we are. So if you're broken, would you look to him? If you've fallen, would you turn your gaze upon him? If you've messed up, would you surrender all those things to him? And would you then hear him who receives you just as he does many in scripture, especially the woman who's caught in adultery in John 8, and then he would look at you and say, go and sin no more. Sin no more that you can then make me yours so that I will forever and always be your one and only, the only way you were created to live. So church, brothers and sisters, would you then take this time to open yourself up and pursue him, knowing that he is pursuing you. Pray, and then we'll respond in song.